For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And amen. You may be seated. I hope you're okay this morning. Um, I know some are better than some are better off than others. Beth Iman in Yorkshire, Yorkshire, UK. Thank, thank you for asking us to pray for your daughter in Winter Springs, whose house is a mess. Some of our houses are a mess, and some of our houses are okay. Hopefully, your power's back if it went out, or that it will be back soon, and things get dried out. And I appreciate the many of you who have been working to help folks around you. I tell my friends who live elsewhere that you have to be crazy, maybe a little foolhardy, or maybe just courageous to live in Florida. We have our hurricanes, we got mosquitoes, we got alligators in every lake, we got sharks off our beach, jellyfish in the water, undertow, man-eating manatees, I was just checking to see if you're with me. We got sand spurs. Are you kidding me? The worst. We have a year-long flea season, if you have pets. We have drivers with road rules they brought from wherever they came from. And of course, in Florida, you have to live with the celebrated Florida man, because you never know when Florida man will throw an alligator through a Wendy's drive through window. So courage is our theme today. What, what are you deathly afraid of? Now, there are lots of things that I'm physically afraid of, but I don't want to gross you out. For, for me, one of my deepest fears is I'm the child of educators, both of whom spent their final years succumbing to dementia. I fear the loss of memory. Lord. Don't let me outlive my health, my resources, or my mind. For me also, there's the fear of failure, specifically of people thinking I have more to offer than I do, and finding myself exposed as not being as smart, not as competent as others thought. And I've been there before, and it's, it's no fun. And, Interestingly, that happens to be precisely Timothy's problem, ministering in Ephesus, about whom we read today. It's precisely the problem Paul, on the very eve of his own martyrdom, addresses in this magnificent short epistle, 2 Timothy. The key verse in today's epistle, indeed of this entire letter, is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Hear it again. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control or self-discipline. Paul, in this letter, is telling Timothy what Spartan mothers told their sons when they sent them off to war, either carrying it or on it. According to the Roman historian Plutarch, Spartan mothers sent their sons off to war, giving them their shields, and then giving this pithy saying, either carrying it or on it. 
what they mean is, son, I'll know that you fought bravely if you come home carrying your shield. I'll also know that you fought bravely if you come home being carried on your shield because you died fighting for your people. But if you come home and you're not carrying your shield, I'll know you were a coward and you fled from battle. Drop that heavy old shield so it wouldn't slow you down. Don't come home without your shield. Don't come home a coward. Don't shame your mother, either carrying it or on it. That's what Paul's telling Timothy in today's epistle. In fact, throughout 2 Timothy, at the end of his own life, from yet another prison cell, aware that he may be about to take the blade himself and abandoned by all but Luke, who's probably here as secretary, Paul writes what we've come to call 2 Timothy to his young protege who's been with him for some 15 years, now ministering back in Ephesus. Despite Timothy's youth, and we don't know exactly how young he's, he is, he's been put in charge of what is surely one of Paul's largest churches. Certainly the church that Paul had spent the most time in. Now, of late, Timothy's authority in Ephesus has been challenged by strong local voices. Several years earlier, Paul had warned the elders of Ephesus that not only would they be set upon by fierce wolves from outside, but that from among their own selves there would arise people speaking perverse things to draw disciples after them, Acts chapter 20. And indeed, that appears to be what has happened. Strong and disruptive voices are maintaining that the resurrection has already taken place and that, oddly, marriage is forbidden as well as our certain foods. Now, Timothy is an outsider to cosmopolitan Ephesus because he's from a small town, Lystra, several hundred miles away. His social power his authority to speak lies outside the community in Paul's laying on of hands. And that's why Paul warns about setting up neophytes, which is Greek for spiritual rookies, newbies, as overseers. The wannabe, well-connected, but spiritually immature local leaders are holding Timothy's youth against him. And Paul knows they've intimidated Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes to a younger ministry protege whom he loves and who's been knocked off his game. Timothy is playing back on his heels. And no matter the sport, you start playing back on your heels and you're done. Paul's message is precisely that of a Spartan mother to her son sending him into battle, either carrying it or on it. And so Paul talks about courage, what it isn't, courage what it is. In the longer version, I would go through what, how Paul defines what courage isn't. And then there are five basic things, and you can, you can think about them as you read, especially 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy 1 and 2. Courage is not being ashamed of the gospel. Courage is not being surprised at the opposition that comes with living in the latter days. Courage is not getting sucked into controversies over unimportant matters. And Courage is not getting sucked into controversies over unimportant matters. And courage is not overreacting when you 
and letting your own belligerence become the issue when you do stand up for what is right. But what I want to spend time with is what courage is. Paul gives us three elements of courage. The Spirit comes with power, because we know that the power to convince people lies not in ourselves. It comes with love. We, no less than Spartan warriors, will fight more than anything else because of the mothers and the brothers, the wives and the sisters and children and friends that we love. And the Spirit bestows self-control. Courage learns to overcome fear and to measure its responses. Now, each of these three just reminds, reminds me of some examples. So, settle in. This may be a little bit more of a homily than normal, but I feel like I got some things to say that are for you and me. Power. Three really wonderful people band together to demonstrate the power of God's truth, the power of His Word, and the power of the Holy Spirit to move. Eleanor Roosevelt, Marion Armstrong, and Mary Bethune. Eleanor Roosevelt, wife of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, was a lifelong Episcopalian who was vocal about her faith. Did you know that? Speaking often about faith and about prayer and about the Bible. And do you know about the black opera singer Marian Anderson, who was a lifelong Baptist and very vocal about her faith, had difficulty finding somebody to teach her to sing because she was, well, black. And in fact, but in fact, as a believer, she persevered. And her autobiography, she called, My Lord, What a Morning. And then there was Mary Bethune from just up the road who went to Moody Institute in Chicago so she could learn to be a missionary to take the gospel of Christ to Africa. But you know what she was told at Moody Bible Institute? Well, we don't need black missionaries to go to Africa. Like, what? Well, all she did was change majors and go into education. And all that God did with that was bring her down to Daytona. And she started a school for women and ladies, for, for girls and then women and ladies. And it became the college named after her. And then it eventually merged with Cookman, School for Men is Bethune Cookman. What an amazing legacy. The mutual trust that these three ladies had in the power of the reconciling gospel of Jesus Christ is amazing. Eleanor Roosevelt, realizing that black people were not getting fair treatment under the New Deal that her husband was sponsoring, kept the question before her husband and before his cabinet. And when her organization, the Daughters of the American Revolution, forbade the great opera singer, the black Marian Anderson, from singing in Constitution Hall, Eleanor resigned the Daughters of the American Revolution and helped instead to organize an outdoor concert at the Lincoln Memorial, which drew over 70,000 people. And Mary Bethune became close friends with Eleanor, visiting her often at the White House. And when she did, Eleanor would greet her at the gate to make sure there was no hassle she, on her way into the White House. Three Christian women prove that the truth of the gospel has the power to set you free. And there is power in God's abiding word 
For as Paul says in today's passage, grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And may you and I live in the confidence of the power of God's truth. Second, love. Now, I have to lead with a negative example. Hezekiah, who was one of the good kings of Judah. You recall in 2 Kings chapter 20, Hezekiah was struck with a life-ending disease. And he rolls over in his bed, and he says basically to the wall, God, remember me. Well, God remembers him sends Isaiah in to say, God is going to give you 15 years more, and you're not going to see the Assyrians conquer Jerusalem. During that 15 years, Hezekiah makes a tragic mistake, failing to attend seriously enough to the safety of the people he is called to love and care for, Hezekiah pridefully shows Babylon's general Jerusalem's storehouses, thus dooming Jerusalem to eventual exile in Babylon. Thus, Jeremiah's lament that we read today, how lonely sits the city. In Psalm 137's, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. A failure of love. What's my biggest fear, you ask? Thank you. My biggest fear is this. In 2001, I was diagnosed with malignant melanoma. I prayed Hezekiah's prayer. Lord, give me a few more years that my sons may be raised, that my wife not be left alone, that there be another long lap around the course of ministry. And he graciously granted my prayer. I'm still here. My, my cancer doctor fired me a couple years ago and said, I don't want to see you again. And the whole journey into the liturgical world began from that point, including a change from being a non-denominational minister, then back to being a Presbyterian minister, and then finally into the Episcopal priesthood. Oh, wow. And then a half hour later, I'm the dean of the cathedral. What? with its call to serve and love you. My biggest fear, I got these extra years from the Lord. Am I going to use them well? What I fear is somehow showing Hezekiah's faithlessness, not being the dean you need and deserve not being forthright with you about the riches less in our wonderful heritage and more in Christ Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his appearing to come, and the promise of eternal life with the triune God and fellowship also with one another, like forever. What sustains me? The same thing as what Paul held before Timothy. 
Look, Timothy, at the people around you. Look at the faith of your mother and the faith of your grandmother. Look at my faith. Look at the faith of Jesus himself. For their sakes, do not cave. For our sakes, do not cave. For love of them, for love of us, stay courageous. United States Air Force a graduate who's a minister I got to hear a few weeks ago talked about the survival training that he received if he were to happen to be captured and tortured by terrorists, and he's still serving in the Air Force um, even now. In his training, he was assured that he would not stay true under torture because of lofty ideals or even hatred of the enemy. He could stay true for love of his family and love of his comrades. Much, friends, of what keeps me true is your faces. The faces I see Sunday after Sunday and the ones I know that are on the other side of the screen. It's your names, your stories, the fact that you are counting on me to believe and the fact that I believe that you believe because of God's work in you. My love for you, and I think your love for me, is a lot of what keeps me going. We can be courageous for the faith for each other. And third, self-control. Stay with me a little bit longer. The food trucks are not going anywhere. Self-control. Time fails to tell the whole story. The story of the story of Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson. Presiding Bishop Curry told this here wonderfully a couple of years ago. Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson. Branch Rickey was the, the head of the Brooklyn Dodgers organization. Jackie Robinson was the first African-American player in Major League Baseball, thanks to Branch Rickey. Well, the, the backstory briefly is when he was in his 20s, Branch Rickey was a student at Ohio Wesleyan and also the baseball coach. And there was a night in which his team was, uh, was allowed into a hotel room, but a black player, Tommy Thomas, was told, no, you can't stay here. And Branch Rickey said, well, he's staying with me. And, and Branch Rickey remembers that night watching Tommy Thomas sit on the end of his bed, rubbing his hands together and going, black skin, black skin, if only I could make them white. Some 40 years later, Branch Rickey has an opportunity to do something profound about the Tommy Thomases of the, of the world. He has a vision for bringing an African-American player into Major League Baseball. And he, he picks Jackie Robinson because he recognizes Jackie Robinson as a fellow Christian. Branch Rickey was driven all of his life by his Christian commitment to, to love and to justice and, to, the, and to, well, to loving Jesus Christ. And he recognized that in Jackie Robinson. And he brought Jackie Robinson in for like, a, seems like a, I think it was like a three hour interview. And he told Jackie Robinson the spirit of what Paul told Timothy 
God doesn't give us a spirit of cowardice, but he gives us a spirit of, of among other things, self-control. And for three years, I need you to play baseball without fighting back. You have no idea what's going to come at you. And what he did, he went over to his bookshelf and he pulled out one of his favorite books, The Life of Christ by Giovanni Papini. And he went to this passage. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Panini goes on to comment. To answer blows with blows, evil deeds with evil deeds, is to meet the attacker on his own ground, to proclaim oneself as low as he. Only he who has conquered himself can conquer his enemies. Only he who has conquered himself can conquer his enemies. God has given us a spirit of self-control. Baseballs, oh, and, and Branch Rickey comes out and says, can you do this for three years? And he kept pressing him, can you do this for three years? What do you do when someone cusses at you and starts to throw his, and Jackie Robinson says, Mr. Rickey, I've got two cheeks, is that it? Baseball's never been the same. Professional sports has never been the same. Along with the gospel, power-filled, loving, and self-controlled examples of Marianne Anderson, Mary Bethune, Eleanor Roosevelt, Branch Rickey, and Jackie Robinson, American society was put on the path of racial reconciliation. Praise be. Hang with me. Just a couple more pages. <laughs> what courageous thing might God be calling you to? Is God calling you to a potentially uncomfortable conversation? No, friend, we don't all worship the same God. There is one God and one mediator, Christ Jesus. Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and I believe that. There's one path. We don't get to make up our own reality. And there's only one answer to death. Is God calling you to a potentially life-changing decision? I know you probably don't know Kathy Timms who comes to the six o'clock service, but I deeply admire the way our sister Kathy has raised funds so she can see what ministry in Japan might look like. And she's, she's back from a short-term uh, a stint and she's hoping to go back. I love that. Or another potentially uncomfortable conversation. It troubles me when you talk about immigrants or people who live in that zip code the way you do. Because I believe we are called to seek and serve Christ in all persons and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're called to respect the dignity of every human being. I don't know, is there a gift of time, treasure, or talent that you've been holding back out of fear of, I don't know, rejection, running out of resources, of failure? Too many people are dying slow spiritual deaths 
because they're holding on to every penny and not trusting God with their tithe. Or in some way, like Simon and Garfunkel, building walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. Take some chances, risk failing, risk being misunderstood. God will see you through it. Courage. I don't know exactly what God may be calling you to, but it's trusting the power of his truth. It's loving deeply, and it's controlling yourself enough to let God do his thing through you. One more story. One night, the Little League team that I was coaching, we needed just three outs to get a win. We were a bunch of runs ahead going into the last inning. But our, one of our better pitches just ran out of gas. The other team had pulled closer and was within two batters of bringing the tying runner to the plate. The other coaches and I turned to one of our smallest players, Patrick, to all appearances the least likely of closers. But a kid we knew could throw strikes, even though there might be a little arc on the ball as it went to the plate. But we knew, that he could, we knew that he could throw strikes, and we knew the rest of the team would make plays behind him. As soon as we put him on his mound, his mother comes running over to the dugout. What are you thinking? We said, Patrick's just who we need with the ball right now. Sure enough, Patrick made good enough pitches. The other kids made good enough plays. We won. And against the last batter, Patrick was breathing so hard, his lungs were the size of a blimp. Afterwards, one of our assistant coaches asked him, so, Patrick, how were you feeling out there? Coach, he said, I felt like I was going to die. Courage says, here I am. And I'm going to do my best, even if it feels like I'm going to die. I sure hope my coach knows what he's doing. Anyway, here goes. Know what? Your coach knows what he's doing when he gives you the ball. So just throw it. Now to him who is able to keep us from falling and to make us stand without blemish in the presence of his glory and with rejoicing, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen.